And now, the Blaze Radio Network presents 40 Acres and a Fool. Here's your host, Cam Edwards. Greetings from the near frontier, and welcome to a special bonus edition of 40 Acres and a Fool here on Blaze Podcast Network. My name is Cam Edwards, and this is, again, a bonus edition. So uh, we did one of these before. We're calling it Past Tense Current Events. Uh, and that's where we take a look at an old book that has something to say to us today. Uh, last time around, it was the uh, the sort of uh, exploration, the anthropological exploration of the beat movement called the Holy Barbarians. And uh, tucked away inside that book, there was a passage that, um, that really talked about how the media operates and, and how it operated back in the 1950s and just how it operates today, right? Always looking for that that special narrative, uh, not afraid to uh, to sexy up a story, even if it means going light on the facts. Um, this time around, and, and probably uh, for a couple of future uh, uh, past tense current events, boy, how, how confusing is that? Future past tense current events. Uh, we're going to be taking a look at a book, came out in 1955, by a guy named Max Eastman called Reflections on the Failure of Socialism. That's right. Because socialism is uh, in the news these days with uh, several members elected to Congress. You got uh, freshmen and or fresh people, fresh women, I don't even know, uh, first termers there in Congress who are uh, proudly and loudly calling themselves democratic socialists, right? And of course, Bernie Sanders has called himself a democratic socialist for years and years and years. Uh, if you are online, you may have uh, been engaged in some debates recently over uh, what exactly socialism means. You may have heard the argument, uh, do you like public libraries? Do you like roads and bridges? Well, guess what, friend? That means that you like socialism. It, it, it does not mean that. Um, Max Eastman, the author of Reflections on the Failure of Socialism, was himself a socialist. Uh, in fact, he was a very important socialist in early 20th century America. Uh, he was one of the founders of the uh, magazine The Masses, uh, which was uh, very prominent uh, as a, uh, a left-wing publication in the early part of the 20th century. I uh, later founded The Liberator uh, for a good 20 years. He was, if not a, uh, a, a communist, uh, certainly a fellow traveler, somebody who believed uh, in the nobility of the Soviet experiment, uh, who believed that capitalism was on its way out, and who believed that socialism, uh, at the very least, was going to be the way forward to provide uh, uh, the, the people, not only of the United States, but of the world, with uh, uh, an orderly and planned society, one that would be more prosperous for all. Then, about 1940, Max Eastman started to have a change of heart. He had been to the Soviet Union in the 1920s. He had uh, certainly surrounded himself with communists uh, and socialists and those on the left. But um, by the time 1940 rolls around, he had seen Stalin and Hitler join forces. Uh, he had seen that totalitarianism seemed to be omnipresent uh, and, and concurrent with the uh, idea of socialism. And so in 1941, he publicly made his break uh, with socialism at a, a dinner party. He was asked, do you still believe? And he said, no. 
He said he hadn't even really acknowledged that to himself at that point uh, until <laughs> until that that party and until he was asked that question. Uh, after he acknowledged that, Max Eastman became a, a pretty prolific writer on the right. Uh, he wrote for a National Review for a time, wrote for Reader's Digest, uh, and 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 continued to be a voice um, at first of of liberalism. And then uh, further on, uh, 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 more of a voice of conservatism. And then towards the end of his life, he actually sort of drifted back uh, into the center. But in 1955, he writes this book, Reflections on the Failure of Socialism. Now, in 1955, Eisenhower is president. The McCarthy era has largely come to a close. Uh, the Army McCarthy hearings in which Joe McCarthy was you know, famously told, at long last, have you no sense of decency, sir? That was 1954. So Americans are kind of moving past uh, uh, anti-communism. McCarthy's largely discredited the the anti-communist movement, but the communist movement has largely been discredited by itself. And so the left is now turning uh, to uh, to socialism in 1955 as as the 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 the, the great way forward. Um, so in this book, Reflections on the Fear of Socialism, I, he, he writes Max Eastman does a number of essays. And I just kind of want to take these one at a time. So today we're going to focus on the first chapter, Both Hopes Are False. Both hopes, uh, the hope of communism and the hope of socialism. And Max Eastman makes the case that no, <laughs> both of these ideas are wrong. In fact, he points out in, in 1955 that the, the threat of some sort of, you know, uh, Leninist revolution, the proletariat of the, uh, what, the vanguard of the proletariat, uh, uh, you know, establishing a classless society, that he says is a fairy tale. In, in, in 1955, United States of America. But he says there's another fairy tale, one that we are still beguiled by. Quote, that a large group of liberal-minded reformers, not pretending to be a class, not seizing the power, but creeping into it, not smashing the state, but bending it to their will, can take charge of the economy and approximate a free and equal society. He says that notion is really more utopian than the vision of uh, communism being established in the United States. He says the Bolshevik scheme has at least designated a social force which was to carry the process through. Uh, it looked scientific to say that the working class, once the existing order was smashed, would conduct the economy without paying tribute to capital, and a classless society would thus result from the natural instincts of man. This, um, he said again, pure fantasy. But, this, the second, the more beguiling fantasy. He says, uh, this one is the bureaucratization uh, or, or the bureaucratic socializers. You know, what he calls the uh, champions of a lawyer, manager, politician, intellectual revolution. And he says, that's the one that constitutes a real and subtle threat to America's democracy. It is their dream that is moving into focus as that of Lenin grows dim. Max Eastman said the assumption common to these two dreams, the hardcore communism, the, uh, the, the, the more soft-pedaled socialism, the common assumption of those two dreams is that society can be made more free and equal and incidentally more orderly and prosperous by a state apparatus which takes charge of the economy and runs it according to a plan. This assumption, Max Eastman says, though alluringly plausible, does not happen to be true. A state apparatus which plans and runs the business of a country must have the authority of a business executive. 
And Max Eastman says, look at all the power that a business executive has over their company. It must be an authoritarian state apparatus, he says. It might not want to be, but the economy will go haywire if it is not. Beyond the uh, economy, uh, and something that Max Eastman uh, really didn't get into, was the the social engineering that would go along uh, with socialism. He does note, though, the uh, inherently authoritarian nature of uh, both uh, socialist and communist countries. He says the phony elections in totalitarian countries, the ballots with only one party and one list of candidates, are not the mere tricks of a cynical dictator. They are intrinsic to a state-planned economy. Either phony elections or no elections at all. That is what thoroughgoing socialism will mean no matter who brings it in. Hard-headed Bolsheviks, soft-headed social democrats, or genteel liberals. I couldn't help but think of uh, California and the jungle primary that the state has, where now, uh, if you are a uh, California resident, you can vote for whoever you want in the primary, and then the top two vote-getters go on to the general election, which has led to, in uh, pretty much most statewide races, Uh, It didn't work out this way for the governor's race in California last year, but a lot of other races, you're now choosing between two Democrats. It is a really good way to establish one-party rule, and you have folks, a lot of voices on the left right now who are talking about the California model. I think even Jack Dorsey on Twitter uh, a year or so ago uh, endorsed the idea of, of moving towards a California model, even though that would, just based on what we've seen in California, uh, lead to... Uh, the domination of one party or another. Now, in in, in Mississippi or in uh, Texas, uh, it might lead to the domination of the Republican Party. Uh, In California, in New York, uh, it would absolutely lead to the domination of the Democratic Party. And uh, and I think the left sees more uh, to gain from that model than they would losing if that model were adapted nationwide. And then Max Eastman, after talking about you know how inevitably uh, uh, socialism or communism, uh, whatever one you choose, uh, is going to lead to uh, totalitarianism and, and therefore lead to a degradation of democracy, he, he notes what's been happening in the United States uh, in the decade or two previous to him writing this book. So this came out in 1955. As I mentioned, uh, Eisenhower was president. He was elected in 1952. It was the first time in 20 years that a Republican had held the White House. 20 years. You had Roosevelt's four terms. You had Truman taking over for Roosevelt when Roosevelt died in office. You had uh, Truman getting elected on his own in uh, 1948. And then Ike came in uh, as a Republican in 1952 and... uh, his popularity helped sweep him into power. Max Eastman says it took the most popular candidate since George Washington to defeat the party in power, and even he could not carry in a Congress heartily in opposition. How could you unseat an administration with every enterprise and every wage and salary in the country in its direct control? Not only private self-interest would prevent it, and that would be a force like gravitation, but public prudence also, patriotism, he says, would come into play. Don't change horses in midstream, we say, but we would be in midstream all the time, with the entire livelihood of the nation dependent on an unfulfilled plan in the hands of those in office, 
don't rock the boat, he says, would be the eternal slogan, the gist of political morals, that these morals would have to be enforced by the criminal law is as certain as that mankind is man. And you look at, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's uh, thoughts and ideas for a, a Green New Deal. Um, and again, what you're talking about is, is government intervention on a massive scale uh, into the economy. Now, we've had this. We, we, we've, we've had these massive interventions before, right, going back to the 1930s and the original New Deal, um, which you can make the case did not lift us out of the Great Depression. Um, but that, that sort of uh, that idea of government intervention actually didn't even begin with, with Roosevelt. It actually started with Hoover towards the end of his administration. You can argue it was done in a uh, pretty blatant political manner to try to win re-election. But he kind of kicked things off, a Republican. And then Roosevelt continued this, and we have continued to uh, provide these, uh, uh, not just uh, you know minor market corrections, not just uh, having the Fed set interest rates, but we've seen you know these huge bank bailouts, the auto bailouts, too big to fail. Uh, all of these are, are interventions in the market that um, uh, go against the idea of the free market, but, but were done in the name of the people. Right and ensuring a uh, a stability and a continued prosperity for uh, the people. Now, in chapter two of Max Eastman's Reflections on the Fear of Socialism, uh, Freedom and the Planned Economy, uh, Eastman actually talks about this. He says um, there has been no answer, and I don't see how there can be an answer uh, to the assertion of a free market economist like uh, William Repke, uh, Hayek, uh, Ludwig von Mises, and others, that mankind is confronted with a choice between two and only two business systems, a choice which involves the fate of democratic civilization. We can choose a system in which the amount and kind of goods produced is determined by the impersonal mechanism of the market, issuing its decrees in the form of fluctuating prices, or we can choose a system in which this is determined by commands issuing from a personal authority backed by armed force. Max Eastman says you can't dodge this issue by talking about a mixed economy. The economy is inevitably mixed. Nobody in his right mind, he says, proposes a total abandonment of government enterprise. He can't dodge it by insisting the state must regulate the market or intervene in its operations. If carefully defined, that statement is obvious, Max Eastman says. The question... Apologize for the uh, rooster growing in the background there. The uh, question, he says, is whether the economy is mixed to the point of destroying the essential directing function of the market, whether the regulations are a substitute for the market or a framework within which it shall operate, whether intervention is compatible or incompatible with the general control of the economy by the whole people as consumers of goods. That, he says, is the difference between a collective and a market economy. That's the alternative with which mankind is confronted. You can't dodge it. You can't pry it away or hide it from yourself with smoke screens of ideas. It is a fact, not an idea. We have to choose. The choice is between freedom and tyranny. And, you know, in 1955, um, you could look at these totalitarian states, uh, certainly the, you know, the, the Soviet Union was a... Uh, a place that was, you know, far behind the United States in terms of technology, although it was catching up rapidly. Um, but, you know, we look back at the Soviet Union and and we think of, like, the goods that they had when they had them. And they were cheap knockoffs, 
right, of, of Western products. Now, though, the biggest communist country in the world is China. And they're making a lot of our Western products. Uh, so they're not dealing. I mean, you can find the cheap knockoffs, I'm sure, but you can also find the real deal. Unfortunately, uh, as we are seeing in China, they have tried to uh, uh, get the best of both worlds uh, to open up their markets on a limited basis while still maintaining government control. So you, they'll, they'll invite those Western countries in. Hey, take advantage of our uh, of our labor uh, and the low wages that you can pay and the uh, low cost of actually doing business here. In return, though, you're going to do what we say. Uh, and and we will have a lighter hand with you, these foreign businesses, than we will have on our own people. Right? The 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 largest communist country in the world today has figured out um, how to uh, get the 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 riches uh, of a free market economy, uh, while again directing those riches to people in power and maintaining an iron grip over these citizens. So you can have maybe some economic freedom in China. You have the freedom to open up a business. You have the freedom to uh, bring a, a business into that country. Uh, but it still operates under the banners of the uh, the government dictates and the government planning, right? And, uh, and in return, again, you give up your freedom. Uh, we're seeing China move towards a, a system of social credit where if uh, the state decides that you've said something that bothers them, uh, you made a joke they don't like, uh, you can be unpersoned, not by the mob on uh, Twitter, but by the actual government itself. Liberty, Max Eastman says, means the absence of external restraint to Democrats it meant absence of arbitrary governmental restraint and was, to a degree, synonymous with equality before the law. But to the socialists, he says, it meant absence of all governmental restraint and also of those more subtle restraints imposed by a minority who owns the land and the wealth-producing machinery, who, in the absence of these restraints, is going to impose equality. What is to bring it about that men, once granted leave to behave as they please, will behave as though the whole human race were a loving family? We have to make up our minds, Max Eastman says, if we are going to defend this free world against an on-creeping totalitarian state control, whether in fact our primary interest is in freedom from state control or in an attempt at economic equality enforced by a controlling state. We have to accept such inequalities as are presumed by and result from economic competition. Eastman quotes William Repke, uh, Wilhelm Repke, excuse me. Uh, he says it is hardly forgivable naivete to believe that a state can be all powerful in the economic sphere without also being autocratic in the political and intellectual domain and vice versa. It therefore makes no sense to reject collectivism politically if one does not at the same time propose a decidedly non-socialist solution of the problems of economic and social reform. If we're not in earnest with this relentless logic, we have vainly gone through a unique and costly historical object lesson. The problem, as Max Eastman notes, is that some people are okay with freedom going away. Some people feel like it won't impact their life all that much. I mean, you may have, well, you, you, I'm sure I've seen something like this today. We should ban these guns that I don't own. Right, we should uh, uh, stop people from saying things that I don't like. 
they never put themselves in that box. They never restrict their own freedoms, but they are more than happy to restrict the freedoms of others, particularly when the others are exercising freedoms that they themselves are not exercising. Max Eastman says, I think a good number of the uh, the left, the uh, social democrats, the Fabians, the crypto socialists, uh, a new breed to which political expediency under the New Deal gave rise. He says, I think a good number of those folks have a suspicion that freedom will go down the drain. Uh, one of the uh, guys he calls an old timer, uh, Travers Clement, uh, explicitly proposed hauling down the watchwords liberty, equality, fraternity, and uh, running up instead uh, cradle to grave security, full employment, and 60 million jobs. Uh, we're talking about full employment right now. Alexandria Castro Cortez as part of the, uh, the Green New Deal, a guaranteed job promise. Now, again, in order to guarantee, in order for the federal government to guarantee a job, the federal government is either going to have to intervene in the market and become a, a huge job placement agency, or the federal government is going to have to intervene in the market and become a sort of catch-all employment uh, office for anybody who is unable or unwilling to be employed in the private sector. Again, that's a massive intervention in the free market. Now, one that would be done on a permanent basis, by the way. Uh, Max Eastman says, however, our American creepers told so- toward socialism often don't even know where they're creeping. They see with the tail of an eye that political liberty is incompatible with economic subjection, but they refuse to look straight in the face of this fact. They refuse to learn the lesson that the history from 1920 to 1950 has been spread out on the table. It almost seems to teach them. They remain indecisive, equivocal, lured by the idea of security, orderly production, and universal welfare under a planning state, yet not quite ready to renounce in behalf of it those rights and liberties of the individual which stand or fall with the free market economy. Max Eastman says an ironical truth is that these socializers will not achieve security, orderly protection, or the prosperity that makes universal welfare possible by sacrificing freedom. They'll be duped and defeated on all fronts. Democracy, he writes, is endangered by democratic enthusiasts who imagine that they can preserve freedom politically while hacking away at its economic foundations. More even than the fellow travelers with their vicarious flair for violent revolution or the communists with their courageous belief in it, These piously aspiring reformers are undermining our hopes, yearning to do good, and obsessed by the power of the state to do it, relieved by this power of their age-old feeling of futility, they are destroying, in the name of social welfare, the foundations of freedom. So there you go. Max Eastman, first two uh, chapters in his 1955 book, Reflections on the Failure of Socialism. Uh, Next time we do a a past tense current events, we'll take a look at a couple more of his essays, uh, The Real Guarantee of Freedom, uh, The Delinquent Liberals, The Religion of Immoralism, and What to Call Yourself, among others. In the meantime, I appreciate you listening. Hope you got a little bit out of this. I know I did. And uh, until we talk again, Be safe, have fun, live a little, learn a lot, and uh, don't forget to subscribe to 40 Acres and a Fool here on the Blaze Podcast Network. 40 Acres and a Fool with Cam Edwards on the Blaze Radio Network. 